0: please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. And as you turn to Luke chapter 12, just for those of you who may be visiting with us, we're going through the gospel of Luke right now. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48 this morning. Then next week we're going to be looking at a passage that begins in verse 49, kind of a somewhat of a Christmas-themed passage is our next section in the gospel of Luke. kind of gives a twist on the idea of peace on earth, where Jesus says, like, I haven't come to bring peace, but division. What does that mean, and how does that relate to Christmas? We'll be talking about that next week. And then on the 18th and on December 25th, Christmas Day, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, the first chapter, and looking at Christ incarnate, the the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, and how that relates to Christmas. So an exciting December awaits us, and hopefully you're excited about studying God's Word together as well. Uh, the section that we're reading together is, again, verses 35 through 48 this morning, so kind of a little bit of a longer section. And so if, if you're able to stand, uh, please go ahead and stand with me as we honor God and His Word. And if that's uh, too long to stand, feel free to sit as well and, and honor God that way as we read His Word. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 35, Luke chapter 12. know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You may be seated. May God encourage us and strengthen us and lighten us through His Word this morning. And let's pray as we continue our time of worship. Father, we thank you for Your Word to us this morning. Thank you for the privilege of coming together to to talk about it and to worship You. Help us to continue to worship You in spirit and in truth, and help us uh, this month especially to be mindful of the opportunities you've given us to proclaim this good news of your Son, Jesus Christ, and his return to others. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Robert Frost wrote a very famous poem, perhaps you've heard of it, entitled, Fire and Ice. Fire and Ice. And the poem goes something like this, Uh, some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. Fire and ice, these two images of how the world might be destroyed and the universe come to an end— According to one story, Robert Frost was partly inspired to write this poem after talking to a very famous uh, astronomer, Harlow Shapley. And it was sometime before 1920 that Shapley and Frost were talking about how the world might come to an end, and Shapley shared with Frost two different scenarios. Shapley said, well, one possibility is that because of the, the gravitational attraction that different objects in the universe have toward one another, uh, different uh, planetary bodies have toward one another and solar systems have toward one another and galaxies have these gravitational attractions toward one another. One possibility is that the, the universe will collapse in on itself someday in the, the far future. And Shapley said that, that collapsing would be like this, this huge cataclysmic cosmic fireball and, and the universe could come to an end in this great event. Or, said Shapley. Another scenario is that the universe could continue its expansion outward, and over billions and billions of years, Shapely said, the universe could continue to expand, and as it continued to expand, it would become this this cold, lifeless place. Uh, Planetary systems would slowly die out, galaxies would die out, and it would be like like ice, just this this total, cold place, desolate of any life or energy, and that inspired, so it's said, that inspired these words by Frost, using that imagery of of fire and ice to describe the the human emotions of of desire and and hatred and how those can lead to destroying human relationships. And this this picture, fire and ice, how might the universe come to an end? Scripture, of course, has a lot to say about how our world will come to an end. Scripture tells us a great deal about Christ's second coming and and the age that that will usher in and how a new heavens and new earth will be created. And yet sadly, and and maybe you believe this to be true as well, sadly I believe that the church is talking less and less about end time events. The church is talking less and less about the doctrine of the end times and what's going to happen at the culmination of this age, the the end of the world as we know it. I think there's a, a lot of reasons for that. One reason I think that the church has become somewhat reluctant to talk about end-time of time events is because uh, we live in a time where people who talk a lot about end-time events sometimes make these, these wild speculations. I can remember being a, a, a young kid and, and hearing some people say some things about the end times that how in the world are, are they getting this? They would talk about I'd go to a prophecy conference and they'd talk about the Soviet Union, and they'd say, Now, here in Daniel chapter whatever, it's describing the Soviet Union, and here's Mikhail Gorbachev right here. And, and I'd read this, Boy, I'm not getting that. I don't understand this. And then, you know, 20 years go by, and, and what's happened? There's no more Soviet Union. There's no more Gorbachev. And so you realize, Boy, I'm just kind of reluctant to talk about prophecy because all these predictions haven't turned out to be true. Maybe I remember earlier this year, May 2011, remember Harold Camping? Gerald Camping was making this prediction that the rapture was going to take place, uh, I believe it was in May of this year, and, and what happened? Uh, nothing, right? That's, that's nothing new. Maybe some of you who were around in the 80s remember this book, 88 uh, Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. It wasn't, okay? But um, <laughs> so these reasons weren't as convincing as this author perhaps uh, thought they might have been. So one reason I think that the church has become somewhat reluctant to talk about end-time events is because all these speculations, these wild speculations have occurred and they haven't ended up being true. Another reason I think we've been reluctant to talk about end-time events is because sometimes those who get really into prophecy and end-time events just develop these very complicated systems. This is the first book I ever bought on in time events and someone my pastor recommended this book to me and I know you can't see it but it's it's kind of a, a cool looking book I looked at it and thought wow this this must be it and I, uh, I began reading through it and I found you, you can't see you guys can see this it was just like page after page of these really complex diagrams and you you see all these uh, and it looks very official there's these pictures of of heaven and the church and and uh, different uh, you know, different systems that the guy wrote, and there's Bible verses next to it. I think, well, it must be right if there's Bible verses next to it. And uh, as you look at these charts and these, these, you know, he talks about countries and charts and Bible verses, and, and it's just so complicated. A person opens up a book like this, I think, and thinks, boy, I, I can't understand what this person is saying. I, I guess I can't understand prophecy. And so people become, I think, somewhat reluctant to talk about end times, in times and Christ's second coming. A third reason, so one, there's been wild speculations. Two, it's just kind of a complicated subject. Another reason that I think we as the church have been reluctant to talk about end times as of late is because there's, there's so much disagreement. Uh, these are three books that I, I, I had to purchase for a seminary class. Uh, three Views on the Rapture. Four views on the meaning of the millennium. Four views on the book of Revelation. And a a person picks up these books and they read different chapters. And, wow, that guy sounds convincing. Then they read another chapter. And, wow, that that chapter sounds pretty convincing too. And a person just says, I guess I can't understand the end times. It's too complicated. And so the end result of that is that the church, for whatever reasons, and I'm sure there's other reasons as well, perhaps spiritual laziness, we have not been engaged in talking about the end times, about Christ's second coming. However, the problem is that Scripture speaks a lot about the end times. Scripture speaks a lot about Christ's second coming. In fact, just in the New Testament alone, in the New Testament alone, over 300 times the New Testament authors refer to Christ's return. Christ's second coming. There's only 280 chapters in the New Testament, and in those 280 chapters, over 300 times, Christ's second coming is mentioned. The point is that Christ's second coming is a very important event. And here in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is talking about his return and telling his disciples and the people around his disciples, you need to be ready for this. You need to understand about my return. What I want to do this morning, what I want to do this morning then is is talk about Christ's return. And before we dive into Luke chapter 12, I just want to take a few moments, a few minutes, maybe quite a few minutes, and uh, read through just some different texts in Scripture that describe Christ's second coming. And my hope in doing this is that we read through these passages, just a couple passages. What I hope you see is, wow, this isn't in some ways, that complicated. The major themes of Christ's second coming are, are very clear. Christ is going to come back. He's going to, be, he's going to rapture his church. He's going to be reunited with his church. There's going to be a, a resurrection in which we receive new bodies. There's going to be a, a time in which Christ in his second coming meets out judgment. And there's going to be, at Christ's second coming, the establishment of an eternal kingdom. Now, the timing of these things and which happens first and in what order they happen, yeah, that's, there's some complicated stuff there. But the great overarching themes of what happens at Christ's second coming and the different components of Christ's second coming, what I hope you see are, are they're very clear. And our responsibility in light of Christ's return is very clear. So keep your finger there in Luke chapter 12, and if you would, turn over to the right, more towards the end of your book of the Bible, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians is in that section of Scripture with the, of the New Testament with the T-books. You have 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and you have 1 and 2 Timothy, and then Titus. And Here we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read a little bit of the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and a little bit of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And again, what I hope you see as we read through some of these verses is that the major themes of Christ's second coming are, are very easy to grasp and very easy to understand. There's a lot of depth to them, there's complexity, but the great themes are very clear, and our responsibility is clear as well. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Now, what's happened here in Thessalonica is Paul has proclaimed the gospel to the people in Thessalonica, and the people in Thessalonica, some of them have believed the gospel. They've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And after they place their faith in Jesus Christ, some time goes by, and Paul has talked to them about Christ's second coming, and Christ doesn't come back. And now they're getting a little bit nervous. And imagine if you were a a wife, and you and your husband have both placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and you're waiting for Christ to return, and uh, your husband passes away. And, and now you're kind of nervous. Oh, man, uh, you know, my husband has passed away, and, and he's not going to be able to participate in Christ's second coming. Paul, what's going to happen? I'm kind of nervous about this. Listen to what Paul says. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who've fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. In verse 14, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So what's going to happen in the second coming of the Lord? There's going to be a resurrection. Those who have died in the Lord are going to be resurrected first. Those of us who are still alive are going to be gathered in the air with them. And we're going to always be with the Lord. And what's our response to be to this truth? Encourage each other. Hey, the Lord is coming back. We should be encouraged by that. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brother, For that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, what? encourage one another and build one another up just as you're already doing and so again what do we see there we know that the day of the lord is coming we know that it's going to surprise some we're not to be surprised we're to be living in expectation of it and while we wait for that day we're to be encouraging others let me read another passage to you you don't need to turn there zephaniah chapter 1 Zephaniah chapter 1 tells us this about the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. It says, the great day of the Lord is near. It's, It's near, it's hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Verse 17 of Zephaniah 1 says, I will bring distress on mankind so they shall walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to l- deliver them on that day, the day of the wrath of the Lord. And the fire is of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. That seems pretty clear to me as well. The second coming of the Lord also describes this time of destruction and judgment. There's going to be a day where gold and silver are of absolutely no value because they will be completely useless to deliver you from the destruction that is coming upon all mankind. It's a day that is near in the sense that it is always, always near to us, always upon us. Daniel chapter 7 One more passage I want to read to you to help you understand how clear the major themes of the second coming of Christ are. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion, his kingdom, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. That's very clear as well, right? When the Son of Man returns, when the Son of Man comes to establish his kingdom, a kingdom will be established that never ends. So at the second coming of Christ, while some of the chronological details may be issues we need to delve into deeper, what I hope you see is that the coming of the Son of Man, the second coming of Christ, the big themes are very clear. You and I, those of us who are believers, are going to be joined with our Lord. Those who have died are going to be resurrected at the second coming. At the second coming, there's going to be a time of of tribulation and judgment. The second coming of Christ is going to be a time where Christ established his, his eternal kingdom and reigns forever and ever as king. That's the second coming of Christ. And you and I have a responsibility to understand the great truths about the second coming of Christ and right now live in light of Christ's second coming. So what I want to do with you this morning as we can turn back to Luke chapter 12. What I want to do with you this morning as we look through Luke chapter 12 is talk about three great truths that are extremely clear in Scripture about Christ's second coming. And we're going to look at three different parables, and as we look at each parable, we're going to see a truth that should impact us currently as we think about Christ's return. The first truth is this. First major truth that's extremely clear in Scripture is this You are to be ready for your master's return. You are to be ready for your master's return. Look at the text with me, if you would. Verse 35, Jesus tells the disciples to be instructed, tells them to be ready, and gives them two different images to describe this readiness. He says in verse 35, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. This expression, stay dressed for action, literally means uh, gird up your loins. They would wear these long robes around the home. And whenever a person was preparing to leave or preparing for some sort of action, they would take a belt and take the folds of the robes and kind of cinch them together. And so a person that was ready for action, preparing to leave, would be a person who'd who'd girded up their loins, who'd, who'd put on a belt. Jesus says, Be ready, be dressed for action. Then he says, Keep your lamps burning. The idea there is that if you're going to be traveling at night or doing something in the darkness, you need to have a lamp ready to do the things you're supposed to do. And so the instruction Jesus is giving them is, is be ready. And then he says, uh, here's a little parable to show you what you're to be like as you wait. He says in verse 35, I'm sorry, verse 36, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes the imagery here that Jesus is giving to those who are listening to him listening to him is that they are to be like slaves who are waiting for their master's return you and i as we wait for jesus christ's return are to be like slaves waiting for a master's return now when we're supposed to be like slaves we need to understand what a slave is right the ESV that we're reading from this morning translates a, a word servant, and some of your translations may, save, may say slave. The word that Luke uses here is a Greek word uh, doulos, doulos. And literally that Greek word that Luke uses means slave. And English translators, as they find the word doulos, the Greek word doulos in the Greek text throughout the New Testament. They, they struggle with how to translate it. Sometimes they use the word slave. Sometimes they use the word servant. And the reason they struggle with this word slave is because slave means something different in different cultural contexts. Obviously, in our North American cultural context, we have one perception of slavery and what slavery looks like and what slavery, slavery is. We think of that most heinous time in our nation's history whenever slavery existed here slavery has existed in almost all human cultures throughout human history in jesus's culture slaves comprised some 15 to 30% of the roman empire a slave in the roman empire could be found against uh, be found throughout all different classes of society some slaves were workers in the fields. Some slaves were doctors. Some were lawyers. Some were builders. Uh, these slaves had varying degrees of education. Some slaves were like accountants. Some slaves were household managers. Slaves existed in all different aspects of culture and of society. A slave had the responsibility to do what his or her master told them to do. And in that sense, there's kind of a universal common denominator to slavery. The slave does not have autonomy. The slave can't wake up one morning and say, you know what, uh, today I think I'll do such and such. The slave is the, the property, the responsibility of his or her owner. Now, in different cultures, there's a different amounts of laws governing how a person can treat their slave or sell their slave or what it looks like that their property. But the bottom line, the common denominator throughout different cultures in human history in which slavery has existed is a slave does what the master says to do. And so the picture that Jesus paints here is that you and I are to be like slaves who wait for the master's return. What's happened to the master? The master's off at some party. This party could last a couple days, it could last a week, where it could last longer. And what does Jesus say the slaves are doing? The slaves don't say, oh, the master's gone. Guys, what do you want to do tonight? I don't know. Let's, Let's go out and party. Let's go get drunk. That's not what the slave has the opportunity to do. The slave is to live in expectation of his master's return and do the things that his or her master has told him or her to do while the master's gone. In fact, looking into the text, verse 36 it says they're they're waiting for their master to return. There's this constant expectation so that as he comes home, they can open the door to him at once, immediately when he comes and when he knocks. They're people at the ready. And there's something shocking that happens when the master returns, and it says Jesus Jesus says when he returns and it's it's late at night, when he comes in, I say, Blessed are the servants whom the master finds awake. And then this is the shocking part, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. And so there's this shocking imagery here. This master comes home, finds his slaves ready, and then he engages in serving them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed, happy are those servants. A couple things I want you to think about here. As we look at this parable, if you're a slave, you are ready as a slave. That's your purpose. And our Master, our Lord Jesus Christ, has told us to be ready for his return. There's kind of an interesting theology that's making its way through the church today, and it's a theology that I think our church needs to be especially careful of i first kind of encountered this theology of, of probably 10 years ago and it's continued to grow and when I, once when i was a youth pastor i was, I, I encountered the, i started encountering this theology among our youth when i was a youth pastor and i was talking to a kid one time and and he was kind of critical of the traditional church he said you know i think that our church is so concerned about doctrine and so concerned about the gospel and evangelism that we've really missed what we're supposed to be about. I said, that, that's a very interesting way to view things. What, what do you mean? He said, well, I think that the church should be focused on, on meeting people's needs right here and, and right now. We shouldn't be so focused on the kingdom and the future, the heaven and, and hell and this, this future stuff. We shouldn't be so focused on that Instead, instead, we should be focused on what he called missional living now, living out the mission of Christ now. I said, that's very interesting that you would separate those two. You'd say there's a future kingdom, but that future kingdom shouldn't, we shouldn't focus on it, we should instead focus on the kingdom now. And we talked about some different authors that he was reading. Let me read to you some excerpts of this kingdom now theology by one of the writers that he was he was reading. Look, just a couple excerpts here. And again, I think this is very important for our church. Our church is a church that focuses on meeting people's current physical needs. We're a church that is engaged in biblical counseling, trying to find people who are hurting and, and meet those needs. We're a church that spends time um, on compassion ministry, and we're a church that's uh, passionate about adoption ministry. And so we're a church that's that's passionate about doing things in this world right now and meeting people's needs, but I I think it's very important for us to understand why we do those things and why we don't. What are some of the reasons we would, what are some of the, what are not some of the reasons that we do those things? Does that make sense? It will. (laughs) Please, Lord, let that be true. Here's what one one of the authors that he was reading said. He's talking about the future state of a person's soul. And as he's writing, the author says, isn't it clear that I do not believe that this is the right question for a missional Christian to ask? Can't we talk for a while about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven instead of jumping to how to escape earth and get to heaven as quickly as possible? Can't we talk for a while about overthrowing and undermining every hellish stronghold in our lives and in our world? And the author says, I don't like being told to choose between exclusivism or universalism and inclusivism. Each road takes you somewhere, to a place with some advantages and some disadvantages, but none of them is the road of my missional calling, blessed in this life to be a blessing to everyone on earth. Just imagine, he goes on to say, if every Christian child could learn that this is what it means to be a missional Christian, to join Jesus in expressing God's love for the whole world, to follow Jesus in his mission of saving love for the world. More important to me than the hell question, in other words, more important to me than these future issues, is the mission question. So this kingdom now theology, what it does is it says, okay, we're going to focus on meeting people's physical needs right now. We're going to try to be loving to other people right now. We're going to be missional, involved in their lives, incarnate ourselves in their lives, and we're not going to worry about this this future kingdom stuff that's distracted the church. It's a beautiful thought. but it's not a biblical one. Now, are we supposed to be involved in in kingdom living right now? Absolutely, absolutely. But to divorce kingdom living now from the future kingdom is not what our master calls us to do. In fact, our kingdom living now depends on there being a future kingdom. Because this kingdom now certainly isn't God's kingdom. You and I live as citizens of another kingdom, but we live in anticipation of this kingdom being established, not because the kingdom has already been established in reality right now. Two things I want you to think about as you think about this this truth that you and I are to be ready for our master's return. The first thing I want you to think about is this. You are a slave. You are a, a do-loss. You do not have autonomy over your own life. You don't have the luxury of waking up this morning and saying, you know what, today I feel like doing X, and I'm going to go off and, and do whatever it is that I desire to do. You are a slave, and a slave does what the master says. You're not an employee. There is not a, a uh, Christian employee manual. Just this past week, uh, someone asked me how we handled something on staff. Someone from a different church asked me, now, how does your staff do such and such? And I said, boy, I don't know, but I know we have some employee manual somewhere. And I opened up my computer, finally found it. Ah, here, this is what employees at Bethany Community Church are supposed to do. I try not to share that with the other employees because I prefer a dictatorship. We're not members of a union, right? There's not like union privileges that we have. We're slaves. What God says is what we do. We don't say, hey, God, let's take a vote about this. We are slaves of a master. And what the master says goes clear, simple, straightforward. The second thing I want you to glean from this first parable is that you and I must not be distracted by the current kingdom. In fact, you and I must not be distracted by even good things about this current kingdom. You know how dear the adoption ministry, for example, is to my own heart. But the adoption ministry is not why I exist as, as a pastor, as, as, a, as a Christian in this world. I exist to do the will of my master and to wait for the establishment of his kingdom. And right now, I'm called to do certain things, but I don't, I don't exist for the establishment of some kingdom here and now. And the good things that I do shouldn't be my, my primary focus. They're outflowing of my focus on my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's kind of two ways we can fall, right? On one side of this this tightrope that we walk, we can fall into this this side where we say, I'm going to be just totally immersed in, in living for this kingdom and doing nice things here on this kingdom. The other side of this tightrope is to say, well, all I'm going to do is, is talk about the gospel and just share the gospel and not worry about people's physical needs. A person who truly believes the gospel and is, is, has uh, appropriated through faith God's reconciliation to their lives, a person who's, who's rightly reconciled themselves to God, is going to be a person that lives out the gospel and the future kingdom in their lives, not someone who lives in ignorance of the future or rejects a future kingdom. You are a slave who is to be ready for your master's return. Let's look at the second parable. It's a short one. Here we're going to see this major truth about Christ's second coming. You do not know When your master will return, verse 39 and 40. Verse 39, verse 39, Jesus says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. When Christ talks about the need to be ready for the Master's return, the obvious question that perhaps some of the audience would have been asking is, okay, we're to be ready, but but when is it going to take place? This is true any time we hear about a major or exciting event, right? You know, we tell our kids, uh, we're going to go to Texas. When are we going to go to Texas? How long is it going to take to get to Texas? How many miles is it to Texas? How many days will we be in Texas? When will we come back? How long will it take us to get back? What will we do when we get back? When will we do that? When, 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 right? When something exciting is going to take place, when something major is going to take place, we want to know when. We're going to build a building. When are we going to build a building? When is it going to be done? When are we going to do a fundraiser? When are we going to have the architects decide it? I don't know. (laughs) Stop asking. No. (laughs) I want to know too. (laughs) When, when, when. That's big events. We want to know when. Jesus has some interesting news for us. You don't know. Now, if, if a master of a house knew when a person was going to to uh, rob his house, in fact, the imagery here is a person digging through a, a, a muddy wall, a brick wall, kind of digging through that and, and, and robbing them. If you knew when that was going to take place, you would stay there and be ready for them. When I was in college, uh, someone stole my, my, my bike. I just bought this, this great, I got a great deal at a garage sale, this $50 bike got me around campus and to work and stuff, and, and this, this beautiful bike, I left it on the balcony and someone, someone stole it. And how many times do I tell myself, oh, if only I had known that was going to be stolen, I would have put a lock on it. But I didn't. It still bugs me. If he had known what time the thief was going to break in, he would have been prepared. But Jesus says, you don't know. You don't know. Isn't that kind of interesting? What's the theology here of, of not knowing? What does it mean to us practically that, that we don't know when the Lord is going to return. There's lots of scriptures that, that tell us about the nearness of the day of the Lord. Isaiah 13, 6 says, wait for the, a whale for the day of the Lord is near. Ezekiel 33, the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. Joel 1, 15, the last for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. Obadiah 15, for the day of the Lord is near. It's near, it's near, it's near, but, but, but why don't we know more? Why don't we know when? I think there's a certain humility that is created in the human heart as we recognize we're slaves who don't know and there's a certain expectation and a growth in holiness that should occur in our hearts as we contemplate that the end of all things is at hand it's near although we don't know when it's always it's always approaching it's always ever closer it should create humility i mentioned uh, prophecy conferences they they used to be a lot more prominent right I was at a prophecy conference some 20 years ago and was sitting there in the audience and there were some experts on stage and and uh, kind of a panel and kind of a Q&A time and you know what gets asked at every prophecy conference, a person raises their hand and says, um, who's the Antichrist? And the first guy uh, takes the microphone and he sa- I couldn't believe he said this. He said, I know, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> what? I know too, but I'm not going to tell you either. I mean, wh- who says that? And they went up this long answer, you know, f- you know, probably 10 minutes of who it is, and I can't tell you exactly his name and his address, but, but here's the general characteristics of him, but I'm not going to tell you his name. Okay. Then he passes the microphone to the next guy. The next guy grabs the microphone, <laughs> looks at him, and says, I have no idea, and passes the microphone on to the next guy. I think that's healthy. I think there's a, a healthy humility to say, you know what, I don't know. When is the Lord going to return? I don't know. It's soon. It's near. It's upon us. But I I don't know when. There's a humility that's created in the heart of a slave as we recognize that we don't know what God's plan is. We're slaves. What are we supposed to be doing right now? We're, We're supposed to be pursuing holiness. We're supposed to be living in expectation of our master's return. It's imminent. It's close. When is it? I don't know. Whenever I was in high school, a guy in the church came up to me. We were, we were talking about something. He said, "What do you want to do with your life?" And I said, "Well, uh, I, I'm planning on going to, to college here, and, and I'm going to be pre-law. Then I'm going to law school, and then after law school, uh, you know, I'm going to go do this type of law practice, you know, corporate law or something." And he looks at me. He says, "I don't think you will." I said, "Well, then why did you ask?" He says, "I, I think Christ is coming back first. He Says, I, "I don't, I don't think that you're going to, to make it through law school. Not because you're not smart enough, but because." The Lord will return first. He says, I don't know that. I just kind of think that's true as I, I think about the nearness of the Lord. Now, on one hand, he was wrong, all right, in terms of the timing of the, the return of the Lord, but that conversation was very influential in my life. Just to think about, you know, the, the the return of the Lord is near. I don't know when. And as I make my plans, I need to make them in, in anticipation that. The Lord could come back at any time, and when he comes back, am I doing things that I can justify to my Lord, my master, saying, look, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I could have done that. I believe I could have done that if the Lord called me to law school. I could have done if he called me to, to business. Whatever he called me to do, I could justify it to the Lord. But there needs to be that constant expectation, hey, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You say, but Daniel, does near mean anything anymore? I mean, First Peter was written 2,000 years ago. The, old, the minor prophets, even longer. Does it mean anything to say that the Lord is near? Well, we're going to look at Second Peter 3 more in a moment, but Second Peter 3 says this, verse 8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. The Lord has his timetable well planned. You don't need to stress out about it. And from a human perspective, the day of the Lord is always upon us. It's always near. It's always over us, and it could be at any moment. The end of all things is at hand. We're in the last days, and our response to our master is to be submissive to his will, for we do not know when our master will return. It's a major truth. It's very clear throughout Scripture. Third thing, third major truth that I think we need to consider as believers, that's this. You demonstrate your readiness by your obedience. You demonstrate your readiness for your master's return by your obedience to his will here and now. Remember what I said earlier is I criticized kind of the kingdom now theology. I criticized the kingdom now theology because it divorces the kingdom, our our living now from this future kingdom that that Christ has told us to anticipate and as his slaves were to do so. But that doesn't mean we live in a state of of, of disobedience now. Say, well, I'm not going to be involved in ministry for the kingdom and I'm not going to be trying to live a kingdom life here because the kingdom isn't here yet. No, a true servant, a true slave of the Lord lives in obedience now demonstrating their readiness for their master to return. In verses 41 through 48, we see two different slaves described. First of all, we see a faithful slave described in verses 42 through 44. Actually, let me read verse 41 first. Uh, Peter, after jesus tells these parables he says peter are you telling this parable for us or for all now remember the setting here jesus has been talking to these crowds at the beginning of chapter 12 we see that there's so many people that they're falling on each other to to get closer to jesus they're they're trampling over each other and uh, jesus is sometimes talking just to his disciples and sometimes talking to the larger group and peter tells jesus look I don't understand what you're talking about here. As you talk about readiness, are you just talking to us, you know, kind of the, the good guys, the leaders? Or are you saying everybody needs to be ready for your return? And it's what Jesus says in response. He first of all talks about the faithful and wise manager in verse 42. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And so if a master leaves, as a master is wont to do, who owns lots of property, if a master leaves and says to his slave that's in charge of his household, Look, you stay here. While I'm gone, you be a good steward of my possessions, and, and do to the other slaves as I've instructed you to do as a leader of them. Now, if the slave does what he's supposed to do with his master's possessions, the master comes back finds everything in order, and says, good job, nice going, and you're in charge of even greater things in the future. Friday, I I came home. The kids didn't know that I was there, and I kind of, I like to um, sneak upstairs when I come home and just start singing really loudly. My singing is scary as it is, but then to do it really loudly and suddenly just really freaks the kids out, and so I was about to do that, um, and as I was about to do that, I heard my my boys talking to one another, and I thought, oh dear, they're probably arguing about something which shows the hardness of my heart, but I heard the, uh, one of my boys tell the other, hey, we need to work really hard right now. We need to be good workers so we can rest later. I thought, oh, wow, that's some really good parenting. And what did I do? I, I rewarded them. I said, hey, guys, you're doing a great job. You're doing a, I come home, you're cleaning your room, you're doing a great job, and, and you're giving each other good advice, and the other one's responding well to it. it it's, it's, it's reward time. Yay, daddy's great. You know. That's the reward of the, the faithful slave. The master comes, sees the slave doing what he or she is supposed to be doing. But the other side is presented beginning in verse 45. We see the unfaithful servant. We see several different ways that the unfaithfulness manifests itself. Verse 45, but if the servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and, and put him with the unfaithful. He's talking here about unbelievers. He said, well, are unbelievers slaves of God? Absolutely. Every human being owes his or her allegiance to their master, to God. Some acknowledge it, some refuse to acknowledge it. This slave here refuses to acknowledge their dependence upon God, their allegiance to God. And so God returns, Christ returns, sees them not doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they're assigned a place with unbelievers, with the unfaithful. Then we come to verse 47, it says, And that servant who did not get ready... Or act according to his will will receive a severe beating, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. The the bottom line here is that every person is accountable to God, and the person who isn't a faithful slave, a person who has not responded in faith to Jesus Christ and is ready and looking forward and anticipating his return, will suffer punishment. The unbeliever who fails to understand the return of Christ returns, uh, fails to place their faith in Jesus Christ, will suffer eternal punishment. You say, what does it mean about this, these degrees of punishment? Well, the sad thing for some is that the more knowledge you have, the more accountable to God you are for the knowledge that he's entrusted to you. Hebrews 2 tells us much the same thing. The writer of Hebrews says we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. In other words, if... If this one declaration that was declared by angels is unalterable, how much more the message that was preached by Jesus Christ himself. And a person who heard the kingdom of God described by Jesus Christ and proclaimed by Jesus Christ, a person who heard that message and refused to respond to it is in great danger. Every person who fails to respond to the lordship of Jesus Christ is in danger. But how much more the people who are in this room who have clearly heard about their need for a Savior, their condemnation, just condemnation because of their sin, and the salvation that is offered through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. How much more danger are you and I in if we hear that message of faith in Jesus Christ being the means through which we can be saved, How much more danger are we in if we hear that message and we reject it? The danger is great. You demonstrate your readiness for the kingdom by your obedience. You demonstrate your readiness for the kingdom by your obedience. By living now, in light of this future kingdom, I want to close our time by reading Second Peter chapter three portions of it together. Second Peter chapter three. I'll let you turn there. It's right before you get to the end of the Bible. It's before First, Second, Third John, Jude, Revelation. It's Second Peter. Some of you who grew up in the 80s may remember the song by a band called R.E.M. It's it's the end of the world as we know it, and then, and I feel fine. I heard that song, I mean, every junior high football game or whatever, I, I heard that song. I think that expression, it's the end of the world, I think the next part is very important, as we know it. It's not as though whenever human history comes to an end, That'll be the end of the existence of humanity, right? We're talking about the the end of the world in its current system that's going to take place whenever Christ returns. There's a I, I'd never seen the music video to this REM song, It's the End of the World as We Know It. But this last week I was thinking about that song and I thought I've never I don't think I've ever seen that that music video. And so I went on to to YouTube or something and I, I saw this this music video, and the music video is of a, a kid who's been skateboarding and he's come across a farmhouse and and there's just all these, these photographs and these, these memories of the people who used to live in this farmhouse scattered throughout the house, and it's kind of this, this sad picture of this, this young person, this young skateboarding kid finding all the things from this, this family of the past who's, who's no longer around, but there's these heirlooms and these things that he's playing with, and it's just that world has ended as they know it. The world as we know it is coming to an end. The worldly systems that we love so much and are so much a part of, it, they're coming to an end. It's over. And a future kingdom is coming. And yeah, you say eschatology, the the doctrine of the end times, that's so complicated. People disagree. People say wacky things. You know, Harold Camping, kind of an interesting thing, Harold Camping said all these crazy things. And the secular media, and even some Christian media, mocked him, but they weren't just mocking the fact that that he was setting a date. They were mocking the reality that a God would hold his creation accountable for the way that they acted. They were mocking the idea of a just God establishing his kingdom and meeting out punishment. That's coming. We must be ready. Let me close again here by looking at 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 1 of 2 Peter 3 Peter writes this is now the second letter that I am writing to you beloved and both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles knowing this first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires they will say where is the promise of his coming Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He's not coming. Things are staying the same as they've always been. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But according to his promise, we are waiting. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. May you and I be ready for that day and as slaves ready for the return of our master. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the return of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that our hearts would be ready for him, ready to receive him. We pray that you would give us hearts of repentance and faith in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.